Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. No credentials. Reviewing Rolling Stone 500. Greatest album. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us here on the Sound Logic Podcast. And today we're discussing album number 57 on Rolling Stone Magazine's top 500 album list. This is Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. All the way back at episode 20, you might remember that we had our friend Ronnie Barrage on as a special guest. Um, We reached out to Ronnie recently because we knew we were coming up here on uh, Stevie Wonder album, and an album that's sort of fits this cultural moment that we're in and uh we know ronnie has lots of connections in the music industry and just sort of on a whim i said hey um do you know uh, anyone who would be a good guest for stevie wonder album and um very quickly he responded yes my friend lynn so we are really excited to have uh lynn fidmont here with us this evening it's an absolute pleasure to have you lynn Um, We are honored that you're with us, too. I don't know that we anticipated when we started this project having a guest of this quality or caliber. (laughs) Um, But Lynn has been a uh, a prominent uh, recording artist, uh, touring musician, um, voice teacher, some other things. She has uh, worked in the industry with an incredible number of, of artists and musicians. She has really built herself a career um playing with all kinds of different people uh, and is an incredible vocalist in her own right. Um, there's so much more to you, but how do you introduce yourself to people? Well, my name is Lynn Fidmont. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri originally. I live in Los Angeles now. I'm a singer, songwriter, producer, vocal teacher, whatever I can do type person in music. And uh, I've toured extensively with a bunch of people more than I ever dreamed I would. <laughs> and, uh, including like some great people like the Crusaders, uh, Bill Withers, um, Kenny Loggins. I'm leaving out my favorite until the last. Uh, <laughs> well, several people, Natalie Cole, Patty Austin, oh. Quincy Jones, a bunch oh. of people. And Stevie Wonder, of course. Oh, so, oh my goodness. Um, so I've, I've been very fortunate. I found a, uh, I think it was an article from the high school that you graduated from where it said that it was essentially like you were doing some kind of club shows and uh, one of Stevie's people called the club and said, look, I need uh, some backup singers on short notice. Can, can people hang out after the show? And what happened was I was doing a club date here in Los Angeles when I first moved here, you know, within about a year, I guess, six months. And I was singing with another girl. We were singing on uh, somebody's show, and her name happens to be Lynn, too. (laughs) The phone rang, and I was closest. 
So I just said, okay, I'll take it. You know, she's somewhere else. I'll take it. They said, Stevie Wonder is doing an audition, cut a call audition tonight. And uh, so I'm just letting you know it's happening. I was like, this is not the right Lynn, but can I come too, you know? And uh, I just invited myself to the audition. She didn't mind. But I was the only one that got it that night. I was oh the God. only one out of, and, and Stevie, you know, Stevie's on Stevie time always. He's never on, he, they said uh, he's going to be there at around 11. So we got there at around 11 after the gig. I guess it was over, it was an early night kind of for a club date. Right. And um, he didn't show up until one. <laughs> and so we were, I was just thinking, oh my God, I'm tired. And Keith John, who still sings with Stevie, he had just joined Stevie about a couple months before this, this particular date. But he was walking around saying, top, middle, bottom. So you sing top, you sing middle, you sing bottom. There were hundreds of people there. He pointed to me and said top. And I was like, oh, this is a waste of time because I'm really not a soprano. This is going to be. <laughs> so people went up and threes came down and threes up. He'd give them a little something to sing, you know, make up something. And then they'd go back down. When we went up, he gave us uh, a song to sing and he whispered something in Keith's ear. He told Keith to come here. And so I'm looking like, what is going on? And he asked me if I knew Whitney Houston saving all my love for you. Wow. And I was like, not really, but I'm gonna try. You can help if you can help me with the words, I'm gonna sing it. My knees were shaking. I was so oh. nervous because I hadn't seen him do that at, at all that night. You know, no one sang any individual anything. Right. And uh, so <laughs> I sang it and I got the gig. It was the weirdest kind of thing. It was an interesting thing. I have a voice that's similar to his favorite singers like Sarita. And there's always kind of some similar sound in there. And I fit into that category. So he must have heard that. Do you kind of point wow. to that moment as the, the breakthrough for you that sort of catapulted you to what all these other things that you've done? I think so, but I had already done Bill Withers and I had already done Lou Rolf and I had already oh, wow. done uh, The Crusaders. Okay. So it was definitely gave me sort of the credibility factor when you sing with Stevie. You can kind right. of walk in most places and they think you can sing whether you can or not. They're like, yeah, she sang with Stevie. So, <laughs> so, so um, I guess in a way, yes. Yeah. In a way, yes. Mike and I are, are relatively new to uh, Stevie's catalog. It's so big. We were born. We were both born in 1982, so it's oh, a huge catalog, and, and we're somewhat young. <laughs> and we grew up in a very, very white area of Southern Ontario in Canada, uh, where his music just mm -hmm. was not played for us. And so uh, it's really, I think, because of this project that we've been able to tackle some of his best albums and, and gone a little bit down the rabbit hole into some of his other stuff. I'm curious for you, was, was uh, Stevie Wonder always a part of your life? Has it been something that, you know, from, 
from the moment you can remember his music was playing in the background or uh, or was it more later on for you too? It was early for me. Sunshine of My Life was on. I remember. I always liked Stevie, but when that song came on, I, I was like, who is this and what kind of feel? Why does this make me feel like this? It just makes me feel some kind of, you know, fulfillment. Yeah. And uh, I knew he was... I knew who he was, but I think at that moment when his music started feeling like that more, then I researched him. I don't even know the order of his music because it's so much music. Yeah. And I know a lot of it. And when we toured, we did stuff from old to new. And I I happen to love the older stuff more than the new, newer, newer music. So I just... Wish I was born like about five years earlier, then I would have been on some of those records. But, oh, yeah. You know. Do you want to get into some details then? Yeah, I think let's have some details here. Details, 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 details. So this album was released September 28, 1976. This is Stevie Wonder's 18th studio album. And as we discussed when we talked about Intervisions, Stevie had been working recording as a a young teen. I I can't remember his exact age, but in the early 60s. So in 1976, his 18th album, he wrote all the tracks and he co-wrote a few of them with some other people. This album charted very well. And with this album, Stevie became the first American artist to have an album debut at number one in the U.S., which means that the first week it was on, it was number one. Um, also, oh. it reached number one on the Canadian, Dutch, and French charts. And in the U.K., it reached number two, which is interesting. <laughs> I think it yeah. might have gone up to number one there. Uh, for sales, uh, as of today, this is certified diamond in the U.S., which is $5 million. Uh, and as we've discussed before, because it's not albums sold, but discs disc sold, records sold. So yeah. since this is a double, each time one is sold, it counts as two. So that <laughs> that does help. But also they, they cost more too, right, to buy yeah. them and produce as well. Uh, it, so it's gone uh, also platinum in the U.K., 300,000, and Canada, 200,000. So right there is five and a half million and probably much, much higher than that in total. Lynn, question for you. When mm-hmm. did you, when did you tour with Stevie? What years were those? Well, I started in 1986 or 80, I think 86, okay. 1986. You were four years old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 1986, and um, I had a family. You know, I kind of I left for a while. I went out with Joe Zawinul. I don't know if you know who that is. I went on tour with him. I got married, had a baby, went on the road with Kenny Loggins, came back sometimes. It's like a revolving door. The last time I performed with him was uh, at the White House, at Obama's White House. Oh, wow. And uh, we did the Gershwin wow. Awards when they honored Stevie, and that was fun. I did the Super oh. Bowl with him in 1999. That was a, a highlight. You know, I have several highlights. So it started in 86, and it continued on through, you know, 2000s, 
you know, early, mid, early 2000s. Wow. You know. mm-hmm. There's a lot of really neat notes about the production of this album. We know that uh, he took two years to write it and record it. Um, and he wanted to create an album that really encapsulated what life on planet earth meant. And he, he focuses on a lot of different issues. Um, this also uh, is the beginning of one of the largest record deals ever. And I know you and I have both been reading some articles here, Ben, that he was just about ready to quit music entirely to move to, to Africa, to Ghana and work there helping uh, blind children. But, uh, he worked with his agents and they decided that he would re-sign with Motown. They didn't want to lose him. <laughs> and he signed a mm-hmm. uh, seven-year, seven-LP, $37 million deal to stay with Motown. They didn't want to lose him because he became the face of that record company. And uh, there's, a, there's an interesting quote here from Stevie at the time. He said, I'm staying at Motown because it's the only viable surviving black-owned company in the record industry. Um, that was a statement when he announced the deal. He said Motown represents hopes and opportunity for new as well as established black performers and producers. If it were not for Motown, any of us just wouldn't have had the shot. We've had a success and fulfillment. It is vital that people in our business, particularly the black creative community, including artists, writers, and producers, make sure that Motown stays emotionally stable, spiritually strong, and economically healthy. So that's a pretty, is, pretty interesting announcement yeah. there but, and, and yeah. a massive deal. Yeah. Um, but all that work and all that money, it paid off. Uh, the album won album of the year in the 1977 Grammys. And I believe uh, four other Grammys attributed to the album. Um, also really interesting and and. I kind of I kind of get nerdy about some of this stuff about technology, especially in those early years. Um, yeah. He he used a state of the art synthesizer called the Yamaha GX1, and I read that he was so excited about this, and he wanted it in the studio for the recording. He bought two, yeah. <laughs> and I think so that he could have one on um, each coast, right? Like he has one in LA, right? one yeah, in New York. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So um, he called it the dream machine. Uh, it kind of, especially you think about the technology um, back then, it was kind of the size of your dining room table uh, <laughs> or, or maybe kind of your kitchen counter and cabinet sort of thing. Um, but it had uh, three keyboards, multi-octave foot pedals, like if you think of an organ, uh, ribbon controller, tons of buttons to recall sounds and modulate pitches, and even a built-in bench, so it would just come right out of it. Um, it cost at the time $60,000. If you adjust for inflation, <laughs> that's $320,000. Um, and it was uh, it was intended to be just a prototype, and only a few were ever made and, of course, sold, and it got into just a few people like... Uh, Keith Emerson of uh, Emerson Lake Palmer and John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin and also uh, Abba's Benny Anderson and uh, Stevie Wonder of course bought two of those so uh, really interesting <laughs> and when you listen I know we're, we're not quite at uh, songs here but when you listen to the album especially you know if you've got it loud and turn it up you can hear all these incredible sounds some of the deep bass I would say even cosmic sounds and some of the weird, uh, even in a track like um, 
have a talk with God, uh, like just all these crazy synth sounds and modulating pitches. It's it's really an album in terms of sound and technology way ahead of its time. Well, I think it's not. Uh, it's easy did I, for did us. I ramble on? Did I ramble on there on details? Sorry, I just kind of <laughs> went with it. That's okay. I was going to say it's easy for us to forget that um, in the late '60s, early '70s, you know, a lot of the keyboards, electronic keyboards that were out there, um, could only play one note at a time, and uh, it was a huge deal when. Uh, these instrument companies began to make polyphonic keyboards where you could play a chord, and um, and this behemoth was one of those uh, instruments that you could really do a whole bunch of layering of different keyboards and sounds and bend sound and things like that. Um, you know, you think about like kids, kids keyboards today. You know, are the ones that can only play one note at a time, right? Uh, and all of a sudden, sort of the the door opens for uh, talented artists to do so much more with electronic instrumentation when a piece of uh, equipment like this is at their fingertips. Ben, I didn't know that. Yeah. But when th- when did that, do you know when that changed? This is a bit of a sidetrack now, but di- because, I mean, even when we were listening to um, like Intervisions from 72, I think that. Yeah, they, I don't think. have that there. I don't think this instrument was the first time that that took place. Um, right. You, you've got, but and you've that, got but like that was revolutionary. Like the, it was pretty revolutionary. You've got things like the Fender Rhodes piano that's on so much music from that era, but it it actually has hammers inside that that hit buttons. That it, so it it operates more like an electronic piano than a oh. keyboard. Um, huh. I don't know a ton about the instruments, but but I I gleaned that from some of the uh, rabbit trails that That's I followed, fascinating. specifically about this monster thing spaceship that he would he would perform music in. That um, yeah. yeah, it was sort of a pivotal turning point. Wow, that's really cool. In terms of what what was possible um, right around this time. Yeah, a conversation for another uh, for another time. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Someone who's uh, not just uh, gleaning from some Wikipedia pages, but actually yeah, knows what they're talking sure. about. <laughs> you, you mentioned it all kind of blurs together as someone who's performed sort of across his catalog. Does that album in particular stand out to you in any particular way? It does. It has some of my favorite favorite music and everybody's favorite music on there. Loves and Need, you mm. know, uh, Pastime Paradise. Mm. Just so many... Uh, songs on there, Sir Duke. They, a lot of the things we did night after night after night. So yeah, right. Um, yeah, that is one of my favorite from the time from Talking Book on through uh, Fulfilling This and all those. I never really listened too much to Secret Life of Plants or that. Uh, yeah, and, th- and that came after, right? That came after. Yeah. yeah. I came after. He had his accident in 72, okay. 1972. And that kind of spurred on a new awareness or gratefulness uh, for him and more create a creative thing that just kind of was good for him and his music. 
Right. Did, did I read that you also had a similar kind of uh, tragic accident in I your did. life? I Unfortunately, did not. I was not you. injured. Yeah. But a, but a total <laughs> car wreck. Injured. Yeah. Total car wreck. My car flipped over and landed upside down twice. I mean, it oh flipped God. over twice and landed upside down. Wow. Wow. And wow. Uh, the thing about, the thing that I, I, I think I broke my nose. I'm pretty sure I did. I fixed it on the spot, though. I was like, hmm. I asked the policeman, I said, is my nose, you think my nose is broken? And he said, I think it is. I said, so if I go to the hospital, what are they going to do? Like, kind of squeeze it back in place? He said, yeah, basically what you're about to do right now. And oh, no. I did it. And I'm glad I did it because I never, uh, I, never I didn't go to the hospital. I was wow. never hurt. The wow. most interesting thing about the uh, accident was, I must have fallen asleep. I, I know I had traveled that day. I was on the road with Natalie Cole. And I came back and I promised somebody, yes, I'm coming over there today. I must have dozed off because I just remember all of a sudden my car was flipping. But the funny, the most amazing thing about it was I was not afraid at all. Not at all. It was like wow. I was, I had no fear. It was like the voice, my voice that I heard speaking to me. I said, uh, wow, this is bad. And it sounded just like this, Tom. This is really bad. This could be it. And that was all I said. And I never panicked. It was just kind of like a weird, surreal thing. But it made me feel like if I'm not afraid at that moment, when would I ever be afraid? Yeah. Wow. No one would ever be afraid after that, you know? So that's kind of interesting. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, another another interesting uh, kind of concept art cover. Um, it's mostly reds and yellows. It's uh, circles inside of each other, but they almost look like ripped paper, Ben, or like, or... Or maybe a flower, but it looks like ripped paper with interesting shading. Um, and then on curves in cursive writing inside the circle says Stevie Wonder, Songs of the Key of Life. And then on the very inner one, which is uh, white or very light yellow, is like a, a line drawing, like a half line drawing of Stevie Wonder uh, in there. It's kind of small. So, I mean, it's an interesting cover. I'd like I, I've said this many times. I always ask myself, does he... Does the cover make me think of the music? This one, I mean, I don't have it. There's other co covers where we go, this just makes no sense to me. I, I don't understand. <laughs> Why would they pick this? This is ridiculous. This one doesn't make me say that. I mean, it's fine, but yeah, um, yeah. I just don't quite find a connection. Like Intervisions inter was very clear, and, and I think the color scheme and then the, the picture kind of had a beam coming from his eye. Uh, it, it made sense with intervisions. This one, um, I guess it, the circles, you know, talk about connectiveness and how everything's connected together. And that kind of makes sense because very much the songs are mm -hmm. about how we're connected and how we need to, we're all one people and need to respect each other and take care of each other. And also all the, the ways that the pain that we go through, how that's connected. So maybe that's the vision behind it. Perhaps, yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, maybe it made me think of uh, 
uh, might be Birth Canal kind of. Uh, uh, oh wow! Uh, you know, songs oh. in the key of life is something being, or maybe the sun radiating down in the opposite direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a like there's a pretty funny article uh, that I just found here at the quick Google search uh, review of the album that uh, a Rolling Stone writer wrote in the, uh, the time when the album was coming out. Uh, who bashed the cover because it looked just like cheap crepe oh, paper, and uh, and said, <laughs> "I I just paid thirteen dollars for this double album, and you expect me to deal with this terrible cover?" So, like, I guess at the no, time, it, uh, at least one guy was was not terribly thrilled with the uh, simplicity of this cover. Oh boy! <laughs> uh, oh boy! Um. I'll list out the tracks here, and again, it's a it's a double album. I don't always do this. Or do you want me to do it, Ben? Well, I, you don't have to. It's a double album, and something I didn't notice until fairly recently in this uh, undertaking is that Spotify includes uh, the EP that was included in the album. So not only were you buying a double album, you got four bonus tracks on a on a something that was called something's extra east yeah. EP. Um, my hunch is that if you so, bought uh, the double cd today you'd get those songs included um or if you bought it when yes the CD came out so i i, I, don't know, I think you're like, right and are we considering that to be part of the album at this stage or uh was that always just a sort well, of this bonus? is something i've I've never seen before, and and I also just came across that in the last couple of days. So that means, I guess, when you opened it up, tucked in there, and one of the sleeves was was a a seven and a seven inch uh, EP, yeah. <laughs> which I I don't think I, I'm sure this isn't the only one ever, but I've never heard of that on anything we've researched or anything I've looked up that you got a bonus uh, single or bonus yeah. EP inside like that's fascinating so then that's yeah. an interesting question ben is that part of the album i mean it was released in the same packaging yeah well and, it, and i'm just looking here on amazon the, if you buy the cd today it's a double audio cd which contains all 21 tracks so it has the four four bonus tracks included as part of purchasing that album so yeah it's hmm. it's interesting so it so it's like I'm very curious, and I'm sure we, if we did a little digging, we could figure it out. The decision to do that is like they wanted to do all these 21, but they wouldn't fit. Yeah, on on four sides, and they right. didn't want to do a triple because triples are are a little crazy. And then I think <laughs> there were probably concerns that people, people well, people wouldn't want to shell out the cash for a triple. You know, right. like they might pay right. for a double, but not a triple. So you put an EP inside, <laughs> like, yeah. and you don't have to charge more. I don't know. It's it's yeah. very interesting. I think it's really cool. I'd love to, um, uh, I'd love to find somebody who has that. That's who bought, you know, the double and had the EP inside too. I think it's worth pointing out here um, your comment about you know wanted to squeeze on a few more songs. Uh, depending on which article you read some of the people who worked on this say that there were actually 200 songs that he wrote in consideration over the yeah. two years. Wow. Yeah. Um, wow. So whittling it down to uh, the, the double album was probably a task and, and maybe these, <laughs> these four bonus tracks are ones that they just, you know, no one could bring themselves to final, <laughs> to finally cut them off. And so uh, a double album evolved into a double with a bonus. Um, 
it, it's remarkable. And I think it, Stevie's one of these artists, similar to Prince, uh, you know, the legend is that there's like something crazy, like 50 more Prince albums of unreleased material that will eventually come out over time uh, that his estate controls. He just recorded so prolifically. Wow. Oh, and Stevie's man. kind of the same way, you know, there's, there's like, uh, if that person who said 200 tracks is telling the truth, there's 170 what is it 179 tracks out there from this recording session that um you know may emerge sometime in the decades from now <laughs> uh giant yeah you know giant box sets aren't really the thing but uh um that would be quite <laughs> quite a compilation if that ever came out <laughs> right yeah for sure jeez this album's from 1976, and yet I found myself in the last few weeks as I've been digging deeper into it, feeling like it, it applies to this moment, too. Like, it, it really, you know, his effort was to capture humanity in an album, right? Like, spend two years writing about what life is like on planet Earth. But it gets into poverty, racial justice, um politics and and the sort of hidden nature of so many of those things it just feels so fitting in the, the rise once again of the black lives matter movement to be listening to an album from 1976 and it, it felt kind of bittersweet like oh wow this music is relevant and also shit like not much has changed <laughs> since 1976 yeah. that this song still sounds appropriate, right? and that's the conversation you know people talk about yeah this year this happened we marched nothing happened we marched again a couple years later nothing happened so it's kind of you know the police and the racial injustice stuff has been going on considering the police were formed to wrangle slaves they were fo they were formed the police force was formed to capture runaway slaves mm. and it's kind of always been that had that kind of feeling about it, you know. I don't know. I, I study that stuff, and I talk about race and how how people ha are all, we're all brainwashed one way or another or many ways, you know. We have several things that hit us from different, uh, like people, for instance, they said that people weren't, didn't allow themselves to see the enslaved person as a person because of all the treacherous things they did, they wouldn't have been able to live with themselves. So uh, coming to, to today, they still don't see black people as human, like somebody's child, somebody's parent or husband and wife. So that's the issue. More than policing, more than just one aspect of life it's it's all over the place and then the other side of it you know black people had a developed a self-hatred in many ways you know we, we developed some self-hatred just to say when james brown says say it loud i'm black and i'm proud that was a like nothing had ever been said like that before nothing had right. said, been said about black being beautiful or any of that, you had to kind of relearn how to love yourself. Mm -hmm. how, or learn, not relearn, but learn in, in this particular. So Stevie was, Stevie's always been a political 
a person. He's always been a person who sought justice. And uh, being blind, I think he had an extra uh, bit of, um, you know, a need. He was handicapped. So he also got it from that aspect and kind of felt the needs of the underserved and wanted to express it in his music. He still does. He he writes every day. His music isn't the same. Like, I, he wrote so much. I don't know how much more he has in there to write. <laughs> <laughs> he just did a, a conversation on Facebook or something. People are passing around where he re, he um, talks about this particular, I think it's Love's in Need. I'm not sure which song he uh, quoted. I'm looking now. To see, but he went through and and said the words of one of these songs. It's been I can't remember which one it was. I just remember remember saying that's his. He's 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 saying his song, but it was so fitting for today. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's just um, you know he feels a lot about it all. He talked about Martin Luther King's birthday, how long it took. To get uh, to get his birthday to be a national holiday, he was active in that, very active in that. Mm. And just like the fact that our president right now doesn't like all of us, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's it's um, it's um, try, we're in trying we're in dangerous times, and uh, I just hope we can navigate navigate out of these times. Okay. I, I think you're onto something with that. Like we don't imagine um, ourselves in each other. Like I, I even notice right. it in my anger towards the president that, um, yeah, you know, when, when he stood in front of that church after tear gassing protesters <laughs> with the Bible, like I got right. I, like physically felt ill and I realized, Oh, it's because he's in front of a justice minded church pretending to be something and those are my people the justice-minded christians so why can't i get that righteous Ah. anger when i hear about like kids being interned on the border right like that i know that's bad but i don't feel it as internally because i can't place myself in their shoes in the same kind of way and that that's horrible like without that empathy you don't end up propelling yourself to work for change if you can't get to that, that that point of empathy of seeing yourself in the other then you're willing to tolerate all I think kinds it's of human really nature, stuff. Though. Yeah, it's human nature. Yeah, I look at Yemen. I look at the kids in Yemen. That's terrible. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel the same anger as yeah. I feel about the kids here being locked yeah. up. Yeah. Or is, is there's, a, there's a disconnect, you know, but we're all yeah. here together. That's the other thing, I right. guess. Enslaved people. I just got. I just learned that term. You're not supposed to say slaves anymore because it dehumanizes further. But as enslaved mm-hmm. people, they nursed the babies. They had babies. They, you know, they were they were connected. It wasn't like they were far away from each other. They were a, an integrated part of each other's lives. And, you know, we talk about the, I was just saying the lynchings, you know, the people that would go and picnic at the lynchings and have a good time seeing somebody hang from a tree, 
that was considered a, 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 a show to go see. So we've had yep. our minds just messed up. And I don't know how it all became, got that way, but it's just so many things that need to be peeled away that, um, you know, it's just, yeah. it's just hard to even have, a, have hope sometimes. That's for sure. You know, but I tend to have hope. I, I'm a hopeful person, but if I think about it too much, it's hard. Yeah. It's, well, I think it's this hard. album does, this music does that. I was just going to yeah. say the same thing, but I, this music <laughs> gives me hope. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, back in the 60s and the 70s, particularly, it was the artists, the musicians that were driving so much of the protests and starting the chain reaction for change to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I I don't want to say that it doesn't happen at all, but I feel like it doesn't happen as much. The music industry is very controlled and yeah, uh, it's young, changed. young people are, uh, you would obviously know much better than we would, but young people are kind of roped in and they see the money and the fame and they enjoy that. And there's no need to put yourself out at risk. I think about a young man like, uh, actor John Boyega, who put himself on the line and said those things um, in public. I don't know. And, what did, he, what did uh, he, he say? John Boyega, he's a he's a, a British black actor. He was in all the oh. three new Star Wars movies, and he was out in the riots oh. uh, speaking out mm-hmm. um, in London. And he said, uh, I probably won't get another movie, and I don't care because this is enough. This has to mm-hmm. stop. And I mm-hmm. think you're starting to see some people in positions of influence speaking out, but uh, really the example that was set in, I think in the sixties. And then we see in uh, more so was, you know, against uh, the Vietnam war and other things in the sixties. And then in the seventies, you see a lot of the civil rights um, activism with artists like Stevie and Marvin Gaye, many others, of course. Right. Um, right. Muhammad Ali was not an artist in that yeah. way, but. But certainly yeah. in a position of influence, uh, uh-huh. very much so. And we're starting to see some of that. We saw that with the Me Too movement, that uh, actresses and other people were speaking out. And I really think that as much as politicians sign the forms and make things happen, I think it's very much artists and musicians, because music is so powerful, who can really push that change. And I hope that, well, I hope politicians, that, that more. Politicians, I have really grown to... Uh, not respect politicians as much as I want to. I mean, they don't. They they are so worried about losing their position. That's the thing, yeah. Yeah. and uh, that is a such a letdown of you know people you're, who are supposed to be take care of the things, take care yes. of our values. But it's you know. Our country, your country is a little bit different, but our country has been, it started out wrong. It started (laughs) out with, you know, uh, you know, killing, stealing, looting, and raping, and then we expect it to be different. Mm. I just don't understand. So, it's so funny because... You know, Stevie spoke out early, and now he's now he's getting older. But 
it's like we need some people like him. Yes. Mm. Absolutely. But, but, you know, the criminal justice, uh, the people who pushed rap and gangster rap, not conscious rap, mm-hmm. are some of the same people who invested in the jail. Yes. In the jail privatization. Yes. And they put their money there and said, okay, if we if we push this, we'll all win in the end. And it's true. They, they ended up having, um, you know, making money off of the criminal system. And that's, mm-hmm. that's devastating. I don't know if you've seen 13, uh, yeah, Ava Netflix, DuVernay. Yeah. yeah. So, it's just like the whole thing is just, I tell people, people get mixed up about uh, life here on this planet. And they say, ah, oh, you know, I'm going to have it all. I'm going to do things to people. And I'm going to win. I'm going to be on top. But what they don't realize is that this is the short part of life. <laughs> the everlasting part is like everlasting. So it's like... You forget that part. Don't forget that part. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. We usually have our guests pick two of their favorite tracks for our Spotify playlist. Um, two, two of your favorite tracks from this album. So if you think about those, that I was awesome. kind of looking at, it's so hard. Can I pick <laughs> four? Can I, I mean... <laughs> We could make an exception, I, I, sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I need of love today. That's like one of my all-time favorites. And I have to say Summer Soft is one of my favorites. Okay. Uh, I'm skipping some contusion. A lot of the musicians love that one. I don't, I'm that's not, that's, you know, it's okay. Mm-hmm. Isn't she lovely? <laughs> I love Isn't She Lovely because I know Aisha and she's uh, grown up now. Oh, oh, that's sweet. <laughs> and as I have to say, as uh, there's so many on this on this record. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you my least favorites. That would probably be easier. <laughs> uh, I, I, also, I, did, I really like as. Oh, I love as. It's, I love singing it. I love just the whole thing. The music is just. And it's just so fun to sing. Every time you sing it, it's like a, a, a great, uplifting feeling, you know. It feels like you feel like you're really doing something. <laughs> that, that chord progression in the chorus, uh, walking up that scale, just, oh it, just push it, it pushes so hard. I just love it. It's so amazing. Uh, Stevie's mother passed, not, I guess, about probably like 13, 14 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. Okay. And we did as at her funeral, oh. and uh, and uh, it was just just like the first time I ever did it. It's really interesting. I um, and I don't know how I could forget if it's magic. God, Mika Gela, <laughs> I'm singing. It's just so many. You have Another your own cover of Jesus. that song, right? I did. I did do that. I did. I did a version of that. And usually, I don't try to mess with anything Stevie Wonder does or Chaka Khan or anybody like that. But I wanted to do that song because of the climate that was happening at that time. It wasn't even this time, but at the climate at the time we did that record, 
it was, uh, you know, it just, it's always there. Unless we come to terms with a lot of things and real and, and look each other, look ourselves in the face. It's going to keep on going. I think it's going to keep on going. People get comfortable with their status and that's the problem. They don't understand that there's enough for everybody. Did you have a favorite song from this album to perform when you performed with Stevie? As has it loves to need the intro. I love it. Ooh. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful vocal <laughs> work. <there. laughs> and um, <laughs> and then uh, as is the real one. Right. That's the thing. Wow. Yeah, that was. I found myself um, getting teary-eyed. One night, I think it was the one of the days that we had had a, a local uh, protest, Black Lives Matter protest, and uh, and black man came on while I was washing the dishes, just trying to like get did cleaned up from dinner, and like I could barely like keep doing what I was doing. I think it was that same kind of mentality of the James Brown, I'm black and I'm proud. Like just hearing people shout yeah. stuff out in that sort of prophetic yes. way was almost more than yeah. I could handle in that moment just thinking yeah. about the yeah. afternoon and how that had gone and then that song for some reason it's just, kind of captured yeah ah, <laughs> because we have not as a black race you know and then the interesting thing is race is a, as a made up thing it's just construct, kind of like yeah. where we are and it's a race is a made up construct but as black people, we haven't been treated fairly, you right. know. No. They and um, we all came from Africa, so I look at it sort of like um, if you deny your mother, if you deny your mother, there's some sort of crazy that happens where you're detached from, you know, you detach from some loving part of yourself, you know. And I don't know if that's what what it is. I always like to break stuff down, like the whole human race into one person. So, and just looking at somebody who hates their mother or hates their roots, it's some part of that that makes you not emotionally right. And, uh, and then that's the truth for... Black people, too, there's a lot of self-hatred, the division, the light skin, the black skin, you know, the uh, house slaves, the field slaves. There was division that was created to to divide so yes. that no, so we wouldn't unite, you know, but I hope that's all changing. And really, like, once you can do that, maybe everyone will unite. That would be great. I, I just uh, think that... Uh, we have a lot of work to do too as, as people of color you know you have to kind of not feel pitted against each other and uh that's the thing that i see too as an important um, an important aspect of our growth you know coming into becoming one again you know yeah that song just yeah. is just crazy to me it's it's first time i heard it i was like kind of blown away musically it's it's very powerful it pushes very hard um and just i love the rhythm of it 
and just even that low synth sound just drives it. And then the lyrics are so powerful. And like you said, that kind of proclaiming all these things, these people shouting at the end, it's, I found it very moving. And I found it to, it's so, I want to say it's so Stevie, but it's like he includes all colors. Yeah. Like it's not an yes. anti-white yeah. song. It's not, um, it's not just a uh, woe is us kind of as a people group that's oppressed. It's, uh, you know, yes, it highlights the contributions of people who are not white, but it also includes contributions of people that are white because the point is that, and he says it so many times in this album, is that everybody has a claim for this planet and to be recognized as an important human on this planet not just white people and not just people who aren't white who have been maybe oppressed and even though they need to be given you know a, a, a better standing than they've been given but even in that we still all need to be given a place and I really really found that very powerful and moving it takes such I think strength and humility to be able to do that to not just say, you know, you repressed us, so we're going to highlight just what, but he highlights all humankind's contributions. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's very moving. It's very, I, I, I was very moved by that song. And, I, and it, it, in terms of the things I like musically, <laughs> it really, yeah. again, it, it really appeals to my musical sense and my musical preferences as well as one that I can really groove to. Anyways, that's, that's just me rambling about that. Oh, I, my heart is my heart my emotions are full <laughs> yeah me too yeah so mike i know you you get into some of the um prog rock every once in a while i actually felt myself uh having some prog rock vibes with uh, the contusion song is that one that uh mm-hmm. that you felt yourself drawn <laughs> to it's just an in- instrumental i was curious as i listened to it how you'd feel about that one yeah, that's very interesting. Um, and yes, I really love it. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I love the the, the lead guitar work. Uh, the lead guitarist, he uh, Stevie hired him for this. He was 17. Whoa. And he also becomes uh, a co-writer on one of the songs on the EP. It's Michael Sambello. Um, and he is credited with the lead guitarist. Uh, sorry, he is credited with lead guitar for most of the tracks on the album. Now, sorry, lost my train of thought. When I was reading about this, I heard, I sorry, when I was reading about this album, I read that he got George Benson to perform on the album. And I already knew that George Benson was a pretty well-known, like kind of jazz uh, progressive guitarist. But when I looked it up, uh, he appears only on another star. I kind of heard it. I thought, oh, that must be George Benson on Contusion, but it's not. <laughs> um, it's Michael Sambello. And <laughs> it's it reminds me of stuff from like, uh, I don't know, like from Yes and Genesis and uh, even uh, bands that came later like Fish. Um, yeah, very, very out there, very guitar driven with, with synth behind as well. Um, but interesting uh, chord progressions and timing. Uh, there's vocal work in there too, but not no lyrics. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's one that kind of it. 
it's funny because it feels a little out of place. I mean, it, I really like it, yeah. but it's just yeah. it's the kind of music that kind of scratches a niche for me. Even though on this album it does feel a little bit out of place, but I was like, oh, that's kind of like progressive jazz prog rock. That's kind of <laughs> cool. And then you get into to uh, Sir Duke after that, so it's like just <laughs> goes in a totally different direction. <laughs> Oh, and Sir Duke um, uh, heralds the return of the slide whistle on the top 500 list. Oh, so what do you think about it? I know you've been quick to knock it the uh, two other times that it's appeared. Well, I do remember on Highway 61 Revisited, um, it was on that title track, but it was just kind of silly and ridiculous. This is just kind of a little kind of in between, and it fits because it's a happy, playful song. And it's talking about that kind of playful big band music, and it's in a big band style. I I thought it was very uh, quick and precise, and it wasn't like this long, you know, that was just out of place. So anyways, I didn't mind it. Mike gives it a thumbs up this time. We often ask our guests to talk about whether this album is still relevant. I think we've we've gone over that a lot. Um, it comes in as the 57th yeah. <laughs> greatest album of all time, according to Rolling Stone. I, I think it needs to go higher on that list. Yeah. <laughs> what happened there? Who went there? A lot of Beatles, a lot of Dylan. Uh, Sprinkling um, of Rolling uh, Stone. Intervisions. Intervisions was number 23. Uh-huh. Um, and... And I mean, I would see this up, kind of up there as well. They, they're both yeah. very powerful. Yeah, this record is—I don't know—I don't see fifty-seven. <laughs> I, yeah. that, but that's just me. People like different things. Well, the, the list is pretty like biased. It. It's it's clearly rock focused, and, and the mm-hmm. list of people who voted on it are mostly older white men. And so I think there's uh, some. There you go. Obscured. Okay, we are out. back in the same, same old thing, yeah. you know. But yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> you know, the good thing is, is people continue to thrive. Yeah. People continue to uh, survive, and uh, and even you know, like the the thing is, I used to say, our blessing is our curse, and our curse is our blessing. Mm-hmm. Our blessing is our curse, and our curse are. Like our blessing was that we were kind of in not a people that felt like you had to go around killing a bunch of people. There was a lot of food available. There were trees and plants and everything was uh, available. That created music and love, that kind of thing for music. But our curses, our blessing, because as slaves, we had to work harder. We had to be stronger. We had to figure out how to survive. And that created us, you know, developing into a strong, resilient group of people for the most part, you know. Well, not for the most part, but whoever comes up, comes up well, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. In terms of relevancy, Lyrically, I think it's very obvious that lyrically it's very relevant. Musically, I think that some of it might be a little more challenging, but still, I think the the way the songs are written, the vocal style, a lot of the instrumentation, even some of the synth stuff, um, 
it still kind of holds up. Like it was innovative and it yeah. was new, and you can kind of tell it's from the '70s. But I think it's you know five or ten years ahead of its time, really, um, which puts it more. Some of it sounds more like the stuff we hear in the '80s. Uh, because it was like it was mm-hmm. brand new like we said prototype technology that he was using and he was really good at at exploring the different i mean for a guy who couldn't see how vast the, the well he could obviously feel it but you know he couldn't see how vast this machine was that he was using he utilized it you know expertly um so i think that some of the sounds maybe but a lot of it is very like think about the opening album it's just vocal i mean that vocal harmony that's never going to go out of style it's just so rich mm-hmm. and beautiful i think that people from different walks can associate with that uh, a lot of the piano a lot of the other musical stuff i think i think a lot of it musically is still very relevant as well i don't know that i have anything else to add that yeah to me this is this is incredible i think where I start to wonder in relevancy uh, is, did this need to be a double album, or do you start to lose some oh. of the coherency in in having this much music and and so as much of mm. uh, uh, genre styles as he's tackled in this? I love right. it, but I wonder if um, you know a bit more uh, intense production vision would have allowed this to be two mm-hmm. really stellar separate albums rather than mm. something that's almost too unwieldy at times to handle. But that's maybe my only critique as far as relevancy mm. goes. Um, but and, and maybe why, you know, this is hindsight trying to read into it, why Intervisions comes ahead of it on this list. Um, but yeah, that's a very small critique. I think I don't, unlike the White Album, and, and a couple of the other double albums that we've tackled. I don't see a lot of fluff here where, um, you know, it feels like they were sort of filling out two albums instead of, or, or two discs yeah. instead of, uh, yeah. It's clear that they had way more content and tried to squish it oh, down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I agree with you on that. I don't think there's any duds here you know sometimes we have said that where it's just like oh my gosh you know like let's cut out half of this and make one solid album i think that very easily he could have created two really good albums i think it's just his vision that this was kind of a masterpiece altogether the story the narrative he wanted to tell took this many songs altogether so and and an ep with four more tracks (laughs) so um I, I think that this is just what he created and how he wanted to uh, present it. Um, yeah. yeah. But I mean, you know, with with all that material, yeah, you could have done a few. But but no, I, I agree with you. I like the way it's presented. Uh, it is long. It, 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 I found it hard to carve out the time to listen to it start to finish. I think I did it once. Um, so it, it does it does kind of play long, but it, at no time point am i wanting to shut it off it's good it's very good well lynn's given her take uh, mike what do you think about the position on this list well i totally agree with you lynn i i see this as 
just as good, if not better than Inner Visions. They are both very, very good albums. I'm not sure why that one appears so much higher than this. Uh, Inner Visions was number 24. So there's a big gap there. I mean, 57 is still high in terms of all albums ever, and even in this 500 list, but they're both very good. Many people uh, in the readings, the research that I've done, said that Songs in the Key of Life is his best album. It's his, quote, magnum opus. Um, it's his masterpiece. It's it's bigger, you know, in terms of songs, a double album plus. So maybe it has to do with the voting that just people who were voting enjoyed Intervisions more. But I would see this much closer to that. Um, it wouldn't have even bothered me if they were both back-to-back up in the 20s or in the teens somewhere. I know Intervisions is one of your very favorites on this top, uh, on this 500 list when we've redone our top 10s. Has it moved to your number one spot recently, I think? Yep. So Now i got to figure um, out where this belongs. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that... I would put this ahead of many other albums we've reviewed. I would have it higher. CB Wonder is one of the most influential and uh, prophetic artists of the last five decades. I would see it much, much higher. Yeah, me too. I know that I've got some of my own sound bias that I bring to this project okay Uh, it's definitely gonna rise up my rankings i just gotta figure out how high it's not an album that i (laughs) think really fits with a lot of the stuff at the top and you know just reminding uh you and what else is up there you know stevie doesn't fit with the beatles or stones or dylan you know you know there's clearly a genre difference there i'm not that they're not both great but you know how to sort those together and make them fit is is a challenge in all this music and music in general what the beatles were to rock you could very easily argue that stevie was to r&b um, yeah and maybe pop in, music into, through the yeah. 70s yeah and and mm-hmm. pop absolutely and pop music and yeah. we could i'm sure mm-hmm. go spread out from there and go beyond but yep. you know he's yep. pushing like i said he's pushing the envelope on on sound and on songwriting uh his his musicality is just absolutely top notch. Um, his songwriting, some of it very, very complicated. And when we listen to Intervisions as well, I mean, it's not just straight up four four, like you know, soul yep. tunes. It's it's there's some complicated stuff there, and in this album as well. So I would say it's extremely influential. Absolutely. Even though not not like it breaks off from the rock tradition, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, so has lots of music today. What about um, anywhere else on this list, Mike? Uh, we've already tackled one Stevie Wonder album yep. at number 24, and this is at 57. What else do we got on the Rolling Stone list? So there's two more albums. At number 90, we get Talking Book, which came out before Intervisions and is part of this big stretch of, of great albums that he had. And then... Another, and that was 1972. And then at number 285, we get another album that he released in 1972, which is called Music of My Mind. Can't wait. 
So, Lynn, maybe we can have you back in a little while to talk about another Stevie album. It's been an incredible gift to talk to you, and um, I, I don't want to keep you any longer. Mike, are there any other questions that you think we need to ask? Well, uh, thousands, but for tonight, I just want to say <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank, you, thank you so much for this time. It's been such a joy to talk to you. And, well, uh, thank you. Thank uh, you. Yeah. It's, it's been just, just great. Just wonderful. Thank you, Ronnie. Yeah. yeah thanks, Ron. <laughs> thanks, Ron. Yeah. We, uh, we still have like, um, 440 albums to go through Lynn. So if you take a look at the list and anything Woo! else, strikes your fancy, we'd love to have you back on as an, as a guest some other time. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll definitely cool. Please, do that. Awesome. Well, Please thank do. you. If I had nothing to do, I'd stay on here all night. Be well. Be well. So thank come you. back, California. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Yeah. Thank have you. A good ben, what do we have coming up next time? Well, uh, coming up next, uh, album number 58 on Rolling Stone's top 500 album list is Beggar's Banquet by a band that we haven't been terribly kind to, the Rolling Stones. So we'll see what we think of that one. We want to say one more big thank you to our special guest, Lynn Fidmont. And we want to thank all of you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on the SoundLogic Podcast. Be well. If you like what you hear, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and write a review. Send us a message at our Facebook page, on Instagram, or through our SoundLogic Podcast Twitter feed. Thanks for listening.